You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the July 15th Saturday reading of the Arapahoe County News. My name is Zachary Fisher. Today, we will be reading the following main articles. Insurance companies sue Excel Energy after it was blamed for helping start Marshall Wildfire. Written by Colleen Sleven. Tuskegee Top Gun James Harvey Turns 100. Written by Deborah Grigsby. Property Valuation Appeal Responses to Start Going into Mail This Week. Written by Nina Joss. Bipartisanship Declines at State Capital. Written by Sandra Fish. And following up with miscellaneous articles. Insurance companies sue Excel Energy after it was blamed for helping start Marshall Wildfire by Colleen Slavin. Dozens of insurance companies are suing Minneapolis-based Excel Energy to recoup money paid out to homes and businesses lost in Colorado's most destructive wildfire in 2021. The lawsuit was filed Thursday, a few weeks after investigators announced that the sparking power line owned by Excel was one of the causes of a fire that, fanned by high winds, destroyed nearly 1,000 homes and left two people dead. Embers from a smoldering scrapwood fire set days before on a nearby property used by a Christian religious communal group was also found to have been another cause. The two fires combined to cause a blaze fanned by high winds that is blamed for causing $2 billion in damage in a suburban area between Denver and Boulder. In response to the allegations, Excel reissued a statement first given in response to the results of the fire investigation, saying that it strongly objects to its findings. We strongly disagree with any suggestion that Excel Energy's power lines caused the second ignition, which, according to the report, started 80 to 110 feet away from Excel Energy's power lines in an area with underground coal fire activity, it said. More than 150 insurance companies allege in the lawsuit that Excel, which operates in eight states in the Midwest and West, failed to properly design, construct, inspect, maintain, repair, or operate its electrical equipment before the Marshall Fire broke out on December 30, 2021. The lawsuit, which seeks unspecified damages, said Excel failed to de-energize its electrical equipment before the onset of strong winds. The smoldering fire at the Twelve Tribes property that was also blamed for sparking one of the fires that became the Marshall Fire had been buried by residents a few days before in a way that was approved by firefighters who stopped by to investigate. Boulder County Sheriff Curtis Johnson said at a news conference last month. The lawsuit points out that the official report found that the group's plan to manage their fire was responsible, and that the fire, when stirred up by winds on December 30th, did not quickly spread because of factors including the property's topography and lack of ground fuels. In contrast, the lawsuit accused Excel of failing to do business in a reasonable way, It also says the fire sparked by its power line spread quickly because it was on top of a flat mesa, allowing the fire to spread along the ground, and ignited nearby vegetation. The lawsuit claims firebrands, flaming or glowing fuel particles carried by the wind from the power line, ignited fire-sparked spot fires that eventually spread and burned homes in the communities of Louisville and Superior. In its statement, Excel said it reviewed its maintenance records and believes the system was properly maintained. A lawsuit by businesses and residents was filed last year against Excel Energy, and two other residents fled a lawsuit against Excel on Monday. More lawsuits are expected to be filed 
which lawyers hope to have considered by the same judge. Tuskegee Top Gun James Harvey Turns 100 by Deborah Grigsby James Harvey remembers when there were two Air Forces. One comprised of us, and the other was for the whites, explained the soon-to-be centenarian from his home in Lakewood, Colorado. Harvey knows this is fact because he's one of just a handful of remaining Tuskegee Airmen, a group of black military pilots and airmen who fought not only against enemy aircraft, but against overt racism in the same Air Force they pledged to serve. Born July 13, 1923, in Montclair, New Jersey, James H. Harvey III was the oldest of four children born to James and Cornelia Harvey. He attended high school in Pennsylvania, where he was an outstanding student, the captain of the basketball team, class president, and graduated as valedictorian. Harvey said he never encountered much racism until he raised his right hand, swore an oath to serve and protect his country, and entered the segregated U.S. Army. Drafted in 1943, he was soon reassigned to the Army Air Corps, the predecessor of today's modern U.S. Air Force. Harvey will tell you in great detail that things in the military were different back then. Very different. Especially if you were a black man. You just go with the flow, said Harvey of how he coped. You just go with the flow or something happens, something mysteriously happens. So I just went with the flow. When asked why he did, he replied, because I wanted to live. Harvey settled into military service, classified as an engineer. As the war in the Pacific raged, engineers were needed to build and maintain the many makeshift jungle runways used by American forces. But Harvey was more interested in flying planes than building places for them to land. So he applied to the Aviation Cadet Training Program in hopes of being accepted into the Tuskegee Flight Training Program in Alabama, a separate school designated for black pilots. In 1925, the U.S. Army War College released a report called The Use of Negro Manpower in War. Many say this report set the overall tone for how the military viewed black men. The report stated that they lacked intelligence and were cowardly under combat conditions and lacked the quality and ability to operate complex machinery. To prove this, the U.S. Army set up an experiment in 1941 to prove the findings of the War College report. Tuskegee was an experiment that was designed to fail, to prove that black men didn't have the capacity to fly. But instead, the program produced some of the nation's most proficient fighter pilots. I applied, I was accepted, said Harvey. However, I had to take an examination first, and there were ten of us that were reporting to Bowling Field to take this test. Nine whites and myself. Both black and white candidates took the same preliminary test to get into the Aviation Cadet Academy. Black pilots, however, would be trained at a segregated field in Alabama. Testing for this program was known among service members to be notoriously rigorous and particularly unforgiving. Well, we took the examination, did everything they wanted us to do, and when the dust cleared, there were only two of us standing, this white guy and myself, Harvey said. Long were the hours, correction, hours, and challenging were the tasks for Harvey, a self-described perfectionist. If everything is perfect, there's no challenge after that, he said. I never dreamed or thought about washing out in flying school. I knew I was going to make it because I did everything right. Because as a black man, he had to. You only had so many hours or days to learn something. And if you didn't, you were out. It's that simple, Harvey said. You only had a certain amount of time to learn something. And if you exceeded that time, you were gone. 
When asked if he's still a perfectionist, he grins. Well, I'm back at it, he laughs. I got married, so that was kind of the end of the perfectionism, but my wife passed, so I'm back at it again. Perfectionism. I've always been that way, Harvey said. Like Disney when I was growing up. The Disney characters, I'd sit down and draw them. They were better than what Disney put out. His favorite? Mickey Mouse, of course. I don't think Minnie was on the scene yet. Harvey earned his wings at Tuskegee Army Airfield on October 16, 1944, near the end of the war. A graduate of Class 44-4, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant and began his career as a fighting pilot. While many Tuskegee airmen were already flying in Europe, protecting heavy bomber aircraft on the rate of strategic targets, Harvey didn't get that opportunity. I was supposed to ship in April 1945, Harvey said, and I had my bags packed, ready to catch the train, and I got a message the war was over, and they expected the wind-up of the whole European theater. On July 26, 1948, President Harry S. Truman signed Executive Order 9981, creating the President's Committee on Equality of Treatment and Opportunity in the Armed Forces and banning segregation in the Armed Forces. Harvey says that the order wasn't a step in the right direction, correction, was a step in the right direction, but it also meant his unit would be disbanded and its personnel integrated into other units that would have them. Harvey explains how that became complicated for black pilots. Prior to his departure, he and another Tuskegee Airman, Eddie Drummond, were to be transferred from Lockbourne Air Force Base in Ohio to a base in Japan. However, before they arrived, their personnel files, which included their official photos, were forwarded to the gaining military unit. So, you see, the wing commander had our picture, Harvey said. So Eddie and I report to Misawa, Japan, and before we got there, he had all the pilots report to the base theater, and he told them, We have these two Negro pilots coming in, and they will be assigned to one of the squadrons. The pilot said, No way are we going to fly with them. No way. Harvey said he and Drummond were told about the meeting by the pilots themselves. Regardless of the sentiment, Harvey and Drummond were there to stay and were assigned to a unit flying the Lockheed F-80 Shooting Star. As they wrapped up their initial meeting, Harvey said the man who would be their new wing commander casually asked, So, what do you want us to call you? An uncomfortable mo moment of silence ensued. I said, Well, I'm a first lieutenant, and Eddie Drummond is a second lieutenant. How about Lieutenants Harvey and Drummond? In January 1949, the newly recognized Air Force, thanks to the National Security Act of 1947, issued a directive to all fighter squadrons about an intramural weapons competition. Each unit was to select its top three pilots to represent their fighter group at the first ever aerial gunnery meet to be held at Las Vegas Air Force Base, Nevada. It was officially called the United States Continental Gunnery Meet, which would later evolve into the USAF William Tell competition. Other derivatives would include Gunsmoke and Red Flag. Harvey's unit, the 332nd Fighter Group, selected 1st Lieutenant Harvey III, 1st Lieutenant Harry Stewart Jr., and Captain Alva Temple. They were all black pilots, including the alternate pilot, 1st Lieutenant Halbert Alexander. We met with Colonel Davis, Colonel Benjamin O. Davis Jr., prior to leaving for the competition, Harvey said. We chit-chatted, and his final remark was, if you don't win, don't come back. And with those words of encouragement, off we went. It was May 1949. The competition for Top Gun would prove formidable in the conventional piston category, flying the North American P-51 Mustang and the North American F-82 Twin Mustang. 
These were some of the best pilots and aircraft maintenance teams in the country, flying some of the most advanced aircraft in inv- inventory. And we're flying the obsolete P-47 Underbolt, Harvey said. It was big, clumsy, and heavy. The lineup consisted of two missions of aerial gunnery at 12,000 feet, two missions of aerial gunnery at 20,000 feet, two dive bombing missions, three skip bombing missions, and a panel strafing mission. Well, we won the meet, said Harvey. Our closest competition was the P-51 outfit. They are only 515,000 points behind us. Each year, the Air Force Association publishes an almanac citing overall force strength statistics and such, including all winners of the weapons meet from 1949 through the present day. But each year when that almanac came out, the winner of the 1949 weapons meet was mysteriously listed as unknown, Harvey points out. We didn't find out, we, meaning us, the Tuskegee Airmen, didn't find out about this magazine until 1995. It was only by chance Harvey's group commander stumbled across an almanac and noticed the winner of the 1949 U.S. Air Force weapons meet was unknown. The almanac was corrected in April 1995 to show the 332nd Fighter Group as the official winners of the 1949 weapons meet. Though the records were fixed, one more mystery would remain. As winners of the first Air Force Top Gun competition in the Piston Engine Division, Harvey and his team were brought into a hotel ballroom where the almost three-foot-tall stainless steel victory cup sat on a table. That was in 1949. They had a photo made with the trophy, and it was the last day any of them would see it until more than half a century later. In 1999, Zeli Rainier got involved with the Tuskegee Airmen as a result of a Tuskegee Airmen Airmen pilot from her Mississippi hometown who died in combat, First Lieutenant Kitman Walker. Rainey Orr confesses that, until that day, she never knew much about the Tuskegee Airmen. She was about to get a first-hand lesson from the men who were there. I thought I was just going to go and put a flower on the grave of Kitman Walker, she says. I assumed he was buried here in Indianola, Mississippi, and that's what I would learn, that no one knew where he was buried. Rainey Orr reached out to the Walker family in an attempt to help locate the Airmen's remains. Through her quest to help, she would eventually meet Alva Temple, the captain of the 1949 Top Gun team, at a 2004 event to award Walker's medals posthumously at Columbus Air Force Base, Mississippi. It was there that she learned of the missing trophy. I just felt a connection, Rainier said. Unable to resist, she began a quest to locate it. Not knowing what the trophy looked like, and with Temple at that time in failing health, she reached out to the family in hopes of finding more details. Someone in Temple's family mentioned that there was a newspaper story covering the event, dated May 12, 1949, on a bedroom dresser. That clipping provided Rainier with enough information to start contacting, correction, contacting, military bases and museums. Within a week, she received a response from the National Museum of the United States Air Force in Dayton, Ohio. They said they had the trophy and attached a photo, she said. Rainey Orr called Temple's family on Sunday, August 29th to share the good news, but was told Temple had passed the day before. It was almost like his spirit guided me, she said. I didn't know the story or the impact. I was just looking for a trophy. Oddly, while it took Rainey Orr less than a week to locate a trophy that had been missing for more than 50 years, it would take her much longer to get the U.S. Air Force to agree to bring it out of mothballs. I was talking to the historian at the Air Force Museum, the one who sent the photo, and I said I'd love to come see it, she recalled. 
And he said, It's not on display, and it never will be on display. Rainior was confused. She thought that this was an important piece of Air Force history. It was the first nationwide gunnery competition since the end of the war, and it was the first time that black pilots had participated. Why wouldn't they want the trophy displayed? After a lot of back and forth negotiations, the Air Force agreed to let the trophy be shown. In December of the same year, Air Force Museum representatives took the trophy out of storage and delivered it to Detroit, Michigan, the home of another Tuskegee Top Gun, Harry Stewart, for its first unveiling at the National Museum of the Tuskegee Airmen's annual banquet. After the banquet, the trophy was returned to the museum where it went on permanent display in early 2006. Harvey was unable to attend the 2004 banquet in Detroit, but Rainey Orr, who is now an author and Tuskegee Airmen historian, prompted him to make the journey to Ohio in 2006. When asked how he felt upon seeing the trophy on display, Harvey smiled and said, Feels good. Feels very good. Very, very good. Mission accomplished. Harvey plans to celebrate his 100th birthday with true fighter pilot flair. He says close to 270 friends, family, and guests from around the country, many of them military brass, will join him for a private gala celebration in Centennial, Colorado. There will be three birthday cakes, one fashioned into the shape of a Corvair F-102 Delta Dagger, made of gluten-free marble and cappuccino, of course. What does one hope for after blowing out all of those candles? Continued good health, he said. Continued excellent health. And what does 100 years feel like? Harvey will tell you. It doesn't feel any different than the first year, he joked. Actually, I don't remember the first year, but I do remember the second. That's when I got measles. His secret to longevity? I try to be a nice person to everybody, until they prove otherwise, he said. Just be nice to people. My motto has always been, do unto others as you have them do unto you. I live by that one, and it works. Rainy Orr agrees, and describes Harvey, whom she first met in 2005, as caring and compassionate. I'd just like to say he's a real example of what we sow, we get to reap she said. He's the first in many areas, including becoming the first black pilot to fly jets in Korea, and often, unless he told the stories, they were forgotten. While saddened that she'll miss Harvey's birthday bash, Rainy Orr is happy for her friend. I'm just so happy he got to live long enough to see the day, and to understand that people really do appreciate his sacrifices in the service of our country, she said, because he had comrades who did not. They survived the war, but didn't get to see the respect. But the big question is, what does the first Top Gun think of the new Top Gun Maverick movie? I like the first one better, Harvey said. Property Valuation Appeal Responses to Start Going Into Mail This Week by Nina Joss Arapahoe County property owners who appealed their property valuations this year may soon start receiving responses from the assessor's office, with the first batch of notices of determination being mailed the first week of July. Others who appealed could receive responses into the first half of August. In a year with a record number of property valuation protests, the Arapaho County Assessor's Office will now have an extra month and a half to send out responses to appeals. The Board of County Commissioners elected to use the alternate schedule for the tax year 2023 protests, extending the original deadline to August 15th from the original deadline of June 30th. The county saw an almost 42% increase in residential values since the last assessment year, according to County Assessor P.K. Kaiser. This led to 30,772 property valuation protests this year. 
setting a record for the county, according to a post on the county's Facebook page. After property owners receive their notice of determination, they may further appeal that decision to the County Board of Equalization within 30 days of the notice. This board will hold virtual hearings through late October and will have until November 1st to make its decision on appeals. If still not pleased with their valuation decision at that point, property owners may appeal further within 30 days of receiving their decision from the County Board of Equalization. There are three options for the next round of appeals, including the Board of Assessment Appeals, District Court, or to an arbitration process within the county. This will be the first time Arapahoe County has used the extended schedule. Other nearby counties, including Jefferson and Douglas counties, also are using the extended schedule this year. Bipartisanship Declines at State Capitol by Sandra Fish More than 88% of the 474 bills passed during Colorado's 2023 legislative session that became law received bipartisan support. The bipartisan rate was somewhat lower this year than in recent years. There were also fewer unanimous votes and more straight party-line votes during the 2023 lawmaking term. The data comes after a session dominated by partisan and intraparty conflicts, stoked by Democrats' expanded majorities in the House and Senate. The Colorado Sun analyzed final House and Senate floor votes on each of the 474 bills that became law to parse out the data. It's the fourth year the Sun has examined voting patterns in the state legislature. More than 78% of the 617 bills introduced in the Colorado General Assembly this year were passed, the second highest percentage in the past 11 years. But the number of bills introduced was the third lowest since 2013. Democratic Governor Jared Polis vetoed 10 of the 484 bills passed by the legislature, the highest number since he became the state's chief executive in 2019. All 10 of those measures received Democratic and Republican no votes, and all but one had at least one Republican voting yes. Half of the vetoed bills had bipartisan sponsorship, and half were sponsored solely by Democrats. Despite bipartisan support for all but 56 of the bills that became law this year, partisanship was more pronounced in 2023 at the Colorado Capitol than in recent memory. 11.8% of bills passed with no GOP support, which was nearly double the rate in 2019, 2021, and 2022. In some instances, Democrats joined Republicans in voting no. About 7% of the bills, 32, passed along party lines with only Democrat support and all Republicans objecting. At least one Democrat voted no on 125 of the bills that became law. That happened more often in the House, where Democrats have a 46-19 to majority, than in the Senate, where Democrats have a 23-12 to majority. 60 measures passed with unanimous support, representing about 13 of the bills that became law. While divisions among Republicans at the State House have been common in recent years, Democrats also exhibited dissension in 2023, typically between moderates and more progressive lawmakers, and often in the House. Dickie Lee Hollinghorst, a Democrat who served as House Speaker from 2015 to 2016, said the Democratic discord isn't unexpected especially with a significant number of new lawmakers in the Capitol, as there were this year. When you do have a really strong majority, there tends to be more disagreement, she said. There are so many differences in opinion. You reach sort of a critical mass, where there are just certain issues that all Democrats don't agree on. Republicans and Democrats had divisions within their House caucuses this year. And that was made clear by their final votes. The f Sun defines final votes 
as third reading votes, readoption after an opposing chamber's amendments, and readoption after a conference committee report, whichever came last. A conference committee is where senators and representatives form an ad hoc committee to work out changes to a bill. Moderate Democrats sided with Republicans in voting no on some more liberal measures, while progressive Democrats sometimes voted against their more moderate colleagues, especially on criminal justice bills. House Democrats needed help from the GOP to get four measures passed, because not enough of the 46 members of their caucus voted for the bills. Those measures were House Bill 1135, which increased penalties for indecent exposure in certain instances when it's committed in front of a child. Democratic House members rejected the bill, with 27 voting against the measure and 18 voting for it. But all 19 Republicans in the chamber voted for the legislation. In the Senate, the bill passed unanimously. Senate Bill 25, which created a new "In God We Trust" license plate. House Democrats voted 27-19 for the bill, while Republicans voted 17-1 for it. If it weren't for the GOP support in the House, the legislation would have failed. The bill passed the Senate 22-7, with all the no votes coming from Democrats. Senate Bill 34, which modifies the definition of severe bodily injury in the Criminal Code. 17 House Democrats and one in the Senate voted against the measure. While all 31 Republicans in the legislature voted for it, without the GOP, the measure would have failed in the House. Senate Bill 110, which is aimed at improving transparency for metropolitan districts, House Democrats opposed the bill, with 23 voting against the measure and 22 voting for it, while the House GOP supported it 18 to 1. The Senate passed the measure 29-3, with only Democrats opposed. The four House Democrats who voted no most often were Representative Elizabeth Epps of Denver, 10 percent; Representative Lorena Garcia of Adams County, 8 percent; Representative Javier Mabre of Denver, 7 percent; Representative Bob Marshall of Highlands Ranch, 6 percent. The other four 42 Democrats in the House voted yes on 96 percent or more of the bills that became law. That compares with all House Democrats voting yes on 95% or more of the bills that became law in 2022. Epps didn't respond to Colorado Sun requests for comment. Garcia said she weighs how a bill will impact people before deciding. Correction: Before deciding how to vote. All the positions that I take and the issues that I work on are really about addressing root causes to allow anyone and everyone to be able to have a strong economic future. Garcia said. So the bills that I voted no on, from my perspective, were bills that did not address root causes. They might be attempting to address an issue that's happening in our communities, but at the end of the day, would do nothing to deter what's actually happening. Sandra Sandy Aikens, 63, passed away peacefully June 30th. Sandy was born to Joseph Aikens and Mildred Northrup at Fitzsimmons. She was the fifth of. Six siblings and never married. She lived in several states, Germany, and settled in Brighton in 1972. Kenneth Donald Lange, 97, of Tucson, Arizona, formerly of Hudson, Colorado, passed on Saturday, June 3, 2023. Kenneth was born in Cybert, Colorado.
Suncor's forever chemicals pouring into Metro Denver rivers spike again. By Michael Booth. Discharges of water tainted with PFAS forever chemicals from the Suncor refinery spiked again in May, an environmental watchdog group said, following high readings in November and January. Suncor, which has used firefighting foam containing PFAS chemicals for years on the sprawling Commerce City property, reported May discharges into Sand Creek at 218 parts per trillion of variants of the chemicals known as PFOS, PHOA, and PFNA, according to Earth Justice attorneys. The group monitors Suncor's required reporting to state water quality regulators. Immediately after leaving Suncor, the discharged water is carried by Sand Creek into the South Platte River as it flows through Adams County. The May discharge peaks were more than three times the PFAS limits proposed in a 2022 draft renewal permit written by state regulators to cover Suncor's water discharges. The report shows Suncor's, quote, continuing inability to reliably treat their PFAS to meet even the division's proposed 70 parts per trillion limit, and that limit is still way too high, and based on outdated information, end quote. Earth Justice Attorney Caitlin Miller said. Suncor's continued failure negatively impacts Sand Creek and the South Platte River. Neither Suncor nor state regulators responded to new questions about the high discharge readings from May. The thousands of variations of PFAS chemicals are used in countless consumer and industrial products for water and stain resistance, among other functions. They were used for decades in everything from carpet to firefighting products to clothing and fast food packaging, though manufacturers are trying to phase them out of many products, and states like Colorado are banning them. States' attorney general offices, including Colorado, are suing manufacturers like 3M and DuPont to recover water filtration and ground cleanup costs. PFAS chemicals do not easily break down in the environment, thus the forever moniker, and have been found in fish, wildlife, and in the bloodstream of most humans tested. Until March, the EPA's drinking water guideline, not a mandate to water agencies, but health guidance, have been limiting PFAS to 70 parts per trillion. Then, the EPA issued sharply lower levels that are now drinking water mandates that cities must achieve, setting them as low as two-hundredths of a part per trillion for the variant PFOS and four-thousandths for PFOA. Earth Justice had previously flagged Suncor refinery releases of PFAS. One outflow measured at Suncor found November readings at 1,100 parts per trillion of PFOS in discharges, or 55,000 times the downward revised EPA requirements. Discharges of 54 parts per trillion of PFOA that month were 13,500 times the new EPA limits on that chemical. Earth Justice said, the high discharges remaining in January, though not as elevated. The February report showed lower levels. The elevated discharges came as state clean water officials worked to complete revisions to Suncor's water outflow pollution permits 
that were first open to public comments nearly 18 months ago. Colorado officials noted at the time that they had included PFAS limits for the first time in a draft of the revised permit. Suncor had major December fires that prompted air pollution notices and a long shutdown of refining operations, and environmental groups monitoring pollution there speculate the firefighting foam commonly used in industrial fires could have contributed to more PFAS runoff. The refinery recently announced $100 million in repairs to reduce its air emissions. The state's proposed draft permit revision for Suncor, first revealed in 2022, set PFAS discharge limits at the same 70 parts per trillion that had been in the EPA drinking water guideline until this year. In response to the high Suncor discharges in 2022 and early 2023, and the EPA's March 2023 revisions, state regulators said they were reconsidering the draft permit. They have not offered a timetable on when those revisions will be put out for another public comment period. After Earth Justice called out their November and January PFAS releases, Suncor said the company's testing away from the refinery outflow did not show any higher-than-normal contamination downstream on Sand Creek or in the South Platte River nearby. Suncor's statement said a sampling by an independent firm in May 2022 said Suncor's PFAS contributions are not impacting the South Platte River in any meaningful way. Earth Justice disputes that conclusion, saying that a report from Westwater Hydrology at the Outfall 20 in question accounted for between 16 to 47 percent of total PFAS found in Sand Creek and 3 to 18 percent of PFAS found in the South Platte River downstream of the facility. Colorado County Clerks Honor Kirkmeyer Former Weld Commissioner Dismisses Election Deniers Colorado's County Clerks honored Brighton Senator Barb Kirkmeyer for her efforts in helping them update voting policies and priorities, including reimbursements for the cost of running elections. Kirkmeyer was one of four state lawmakers singled out by the Colorado County Clerks Association at its summer conference in Durango that concluded on June 29th. Voting is the single most significant way Americans exercise their political power, she said. Thank you to the County Clerks of Colorado. You ensure the opportunity to fully participate in the democratic process and freely vote for the candidates and issues that represent my values, my beliefs. You are at the heart of democracy. Kirkmeyer, a member of the powerful Joint Budget Committee, was instrumental in proposing legislation that increased the amount the Secretary of State's office reimburses counties for running elections with statewide measures on the ballot. Currently, counties receive between 80 and 90 cents for each active registered voter. Beginning July 2024, the state will pay 45% of the cost of any election with state-certified ballot content. Clerks were thrilled and relieved with the increase. This additional reimbursement means a great deal to Lincoln County taxpayers who have spent numerous years paying for ballot real estate taken up by state candidates' issues and questions, said Lincoln County Clerk Corrine Lingell. Senator Kirkmeyer heard our cry and worked diligently to ensure the state pays its fair share. We appreciate all she did for us and look forward to working with her on future election bills that will help small counties like ours, she said. 
Kirkmeyer, a fourth-generation Coloradan who has lived in Weld County for 35 years, last year ran for the newly created Congressional District 8. She lost by less than one percentage point to Democrat Yadira Caraveo of Thornton. The other lawmakers recognized at the event were Representative Barbara McLaughlin and Senator Cleve Simpson, Senate President Steve Fenberg, who will receive his award at a later date. These lawmakers are valuable partners, said Fremont County Clerk Justin Grantham, president of the Colorado County Clerks Association. They help make democracy work. Kirkmeyer, a former Weld County commissioner, stressed that clerks are partners with the Secretary of State. Clerks run elections, the Secretary of State oversees them, and she dismisses election deniers who have questioned recent election results and practices, particularly the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. I may be Republican, she said, but I think that the election was fair and right. Cherry Creek Project Luring Students Away from Danger with Attention by Karina Julieg. As concerns rose across the metro last year about a spike in youth violence, officials in the Cherry Creek School District brainstormed ways they could help students who were at risk. In partnership with a number of local organizations, the district organized a six-week summer program for youth who could be drawn to trouble with attendance, studying, or even violence, dubbed the Summer Leadership Academy. This summer, 41 new and returning students convened for the second year of the program, which ran for four weeks in June. Jasper Armstrong, a partner in Cherry Creek's Department of Equity, Culture, and Community Engagement, and the manager of the academy, said that he believes the program has been successful in keeping students in school and out of trouble. I think we're getting some receipts that the medicine is working in their lives, he told the Sentinel. Of the 25 participants from the first year, one was expelled and two were withdrawn from attendance issues, he said. Several others moved away from the district, but about 20 returned to participate in this year's academ- ac- academy, correction, academy, along with a new cohort of students. The students who participated last year seemed extra engaged this year, he said, and worked to hold each other accountable. This summer was special because I think it went a little deeper, he said. The program worked to teach students life skills and brought in different community groups, including the Aurora NAACP, the Greater Metro Denver Ministerial Alliance, and Make a Chess Move. As with last year, Compound of Compassion created a safe zone for students on Fridays that included games and a DJ. Students also worked on a collaborative art project that they presented at the end of the program. Students who might benefit from the program were referred to Armstrong's team from principals from across the district and then invited to participate. Those who completed the program received a .5 credit in social studies and a .5 credit in English. At the end of each academy, the students presented a capstone project where they discussed the ways that the community could help support young people. They delivered the presentation to members of the Cherry Creek School Board, local law enforcement leaders, and other prominent community members. They issued a mighty challenge to us as an adult community, Armstrong said at the presentation. Some of the things students brought up this year included the need for more mental health resources, a desire for more activities and athletics that are affordable for students, and the importance of being listened to by adults, he said. After last year's academy, Armstrong said students' voices 
voiced a desire for more support during the school year to continue the work they began during the summer. The district worked to create a class at Overland and Smoky Hill High School for the students that ran for the second semester of the past school year. The class gave students the opportunity to focus on credit recovery and communicate with teachers about their academic trajectory and attendance, and to focus on skills such as time management, communication, organization, and goal setting. The class will continue again this school year, Armstrong said, though the district is still in the process of determining what exactly it will look like. He said he was grateful for how many people across the district came together to make the class and the academy work, including Superintendent Chris Smith and former Assistant Superintendent of Equity, Culture, and Community Engagement Michael Gills, who left the district this month to become Superintendent of Aurora Public Schools. I have an incredible amount of gratitude for the opportunity to hold space for the students in this way, what is really a critical time for youth in our city, he said. Armstrong was honored for his work in creating the academy earlier this year by the Colorado Black Caucus of School Board Directors. He was nominated by Cherry Creek School Board Director Janice McDonald. State Senator Rhonda Fields was one of the invitees to the capstone presentation and spoke highly of the program. Fields and her daughter, Maisha Fields, have both been heavily involved in local anti-violence initiatives. I think it's a great approach and strategy to keep kids on a pathway that protects their well-being and keeps them out of situations that could be prone to violence, she said. It was clear that Armstrong and the rest of the team had been able to uplift the participants so they could see their own potential and their promise, she said. She echoed statements from Armstrong and Smith about the importance of making sure the students knew that there were adults in their community who were invested in their success. When you're dealing with kids at risk, you have to have people who care about them, Fields said. For a group of Ukrainian women, painting is a form of therapy to help them cope with loss. By Hannah Ararova. Storm Season. The Good, Bad, and Ugly. By Haley Lena. When it provides vibrant green grass, supports the growth of native wildflowers, and feeds our reservoirs, there is beauty in rain. But it also comes with a dark side, as storms can wreak havoc and damage homes, vehicles, and roadways. This spring, parts of Denver metro area saw record-breaking amounts of rain, along with a longer and more consistent rain pattern. It's almost biblical in nature, said Brian Weimer, Arapahoe County Director of Public Works and Development. According to the U.S. Drought Monitor, Douglas, Arapahoe, and Jefferson Counties have seen rainfall above average. Over the past 129 years, Douglas County saw its fourth wettest May on record, with 3.63 inches above normal, making it the 13th wettest year on record. Arapahoe County saw its fifth wettest May, with 3.29 inches of rain above normal, and Jefferson County saw its 7th wettest May, with 2.28 inches of rain above normal. While some may have loved the gloomy days, listening to the sound of rain falling for others, it posed an ongoing issue as well as citizen safety. Roadway Damage When looking at the infrastructure of roadways, Matt Williams, the Douglas County Assistant Director of Public Works Engineering, said there are drainage design standards and criteria that engineers must follow and must look at minor and major storms. As rain persisted, streets flooded, cracks in the roads turned into potholes, and sinkholes began to open in various counties. 
There are different types of cracking in roadways, and when water infiltrates the subgrade and people start driving over it, the asphalt starts to move around and breaks up, causing a pothole. According to Weimer, Arapahoe County has dealt with an increasing number of potholes. Our potholes overall throughout the second quarter are up almost 70%, said Weimer. They're at 69% of what we experience, and just looking at quarter two when we were receiving all this rain is up 103% from the previous year. In addition, Weimer said since May 11th, the county is approaching a total of 15 roadway closures, with some already repaired. Operations manager Carlos Atencio of Jefferson County Roads and Bridges said this season has felt like chasing their own tails due to the consistency of the rains. In the beginning of the spring, Jefferson County maintenance crews focus on draining issues caused by runoff from the mountain snow. They're cleaning ditches and getting ready to resurface roads. When a storm comes in, typically what that does is it completely unravels everything, all the work that we've done, said Atencio, and for every storm that comes in, it just compounds that problem. Our district supervisors know where the problems are, so they know exactly where to go after a storm to get the crews back out. Atencio said this took does take away and delay some of the pothole patching. Douglas County Assistant Director of Operations of Public Works, Daniel Roberts, said the department has not seen a significant increase in pavement damage due to the moisture and no significant flooding impacts have hit the major roadways. When it comes to repairs, Public Works has to wait for water levels to go down. Just because the weather looks better doesn't mean that we're able to get in and fix it yet, said Anders Nelson, Arapahoe County Public Information Officer. They have to wait for the right conditions to make sure that it's a solid fix. There's also the potential for a total washout of a road zone. It may be a size of a storm that is greater than that culvert could handle, said Weimer. It could be debris that blocks the culvert once the water starts building up. Then it starts overflowing the roadway and then starts eating back on that road and potentially fails. Culvert failures were the primary sources behind the numerous sinkholes in June. On June 11th, a sinkhole opened on the shoulder of a rural road southeast of the town of Parker, resulting in authorities having to close Flintwood Road. Heavy rainfall also led to another sinkhole to open in the town of Parker on June 11th, which has indefinitely closed down Bradbury Ranch Drive. On the bad side, the repairs are likely going to cost more than $300,000. June 12th, the city of Littleton closed Jackass Hill Road indefinitely following a sinkhole that collapsed under a moving car. During a storm on June 22nd, a sinkhole on Oxford Avenue opened, resulting in a road closure from Santa Fe Drive to Windermere Navajo Streets in Englewood. In Douglas County, the department has been videotaping the storm sewers for the past five years to manage the pipes. We were videotaping those because our infrastructure is starting to get to that age, so we just want to make sure that we can avoid a sinkhole in the future, said Williams. As this is a semi-arid region of the country, Williams said that it's not common to see standing water around, but... With the back-to-back storms the area has had, residents are going to see it from time to time. Our storm drainage system is functioning exactly how it's designed to function, said Williams. Home and vehicle damage and bodily harm. The damage caused by rain and thunderstorms has also impacted residents' homes in various ways, as well as vehicles, and is currently proven to cause bodily harm. Large hail is not the only source of bodily harm. Mosquitoes enhance the possibility of an increase in West Nile virus cases. Dr. Mark Montano, medical director of Care Now Urgent Care Clinics, 
So the added rainfall this spring means residents should think about mosquito bite prevention. Although some say it's a pretty light show, lightning strikes are hard to prevent. First responders have responded to lightning strikes. On June 11th, South Metro Fire Rescue shared on social media when they responded to a residential fire caused by a lightning strike to the roof. According to the post, crews on scene reported smoke coming from the home as there was an active fire underneath the roof line. The metro area has also experienced multiple hailstorms, producing hail from the size of a pea all the way to the size of an apple. For one family, the continuous rain and hail have caused unprecedented flooding, hail damage, and the loss of precious belongings. During a heavy rainfall on May 10th, Debbie and Doug Osborne's house began to flood. We had ridiculous rain, said Debbie. That was when we first noticed the water coming in, and it came in our chimney. It flooded through our chimney flue, and it came in groundwater like around the foundation. The lower level of their home is 1,180 square feet and 100% finished, with two bedrooms, a family room, bathroom, an office, and a hallway. Filled up with three inches of water. This is the living space for their adult son who has special needs. Wall to wall, there wasn't one inch of dry spot, said Debbie. Rainfall impacts on mental health. Whether it's stress from in-storm damage or the constant gloomy look outside, rainfall does have an effect on one's mental health. Stormy weather can cause anxiousness and nervousness in a person, as many people are unsettled by that type of weather. Gloomy weather can also cause some to experience seasonal affective disorder. According to Vincent Achity, president and CEO of Mental Health Colorado, it can be tied to things like dampness and darkness. The National Institute of Mental Health defines personal, seasonal affective disorder as short periods of feeling sad or not like your usual self. While scientists do not know the exact cause for seasonal affective disorder, Achity said for those who feel it that they should look to cultural remedies that stem, stem from rainy cultures such as, as British and Irish cultures, even Seattle. They need to have sets of personal practices that they can beg, borrow, and steal from others in other cultures to swerve themselves up during the dark times of the year, said Achity. Have to have a personal toolkit of the go-to comforts. Achity also encourages people to stand, walk, and feel the rain, as it can have a positive effect on the brain. It is what s stitches us two together and makes it possible to live, said Achity. It's one of the ready, accessible check-ins from the world to remind us that we are not separate from everything else, and we are part of the system, and the flow of water is at the heart of it. Being in the rain is a great refresh, refreshing check-in with reality, said Achity. Positive Environmental Impacts All the rain has been beneficial for the environment, and has brought the metro area out of drought. The Centennial Water and Sanitation District, which provides services to Solstice and Highlands Ranch, voted to remove restrictions in May as the area was out of drought conditions for the first time since September 2021. Rain goes into streams, which then go into reservoirs. The U.S. Geological Survey produces maps of real-time stream flow conditions. With major streams like Plum Creek, Cherry Creek, Newland Gulch, Clear Creek, Bear Creek, and Platte River, stream flow across Douglas County ranges from above normal to record high, while Jefferson County ranges from normal to above and high, according to its latest update on June 28th. Within the metro area, Cherry Creek near Parker has reached record high levels of water, which has helped the storage levels in Reuter Hess Reservoir. According to Ron Red, district manager of the Parker Water and Sanitation District, 
The reservoir is close to reaching 20,000 acre feet. Another reservoir that has been filled is Chatfield Reservoir, which is utilized by the town of Castle Rock. Mark Marlowe, director of Castle Rock Water, said water demands are down and the area is out of drought conditions. Usually, our water demands this time of year are somewhere between 12 and 19 million gallons a day, said Marlowe. We've been seeing demands between 6 and 11 million gallons a day, so roughly half of what we normally see. However, there can be too much of a good thing. The flashy storms that have brought a lot of water to Plum Creek quickly present challenges, as it's damaging the diversion infrastructure along the creek, said Marlowe. The other diversion on the creek has remained in service, but is requiring a huge amount of maintenance, according to Marlowe, because the creek is carrying a lot more sand and sediment than it normally would due to the high flows and debris, such as tree logs and stumps. This also affects the water quality, and which in turn increases water treatment costs. Although heavy rain can sometimes be harmful, beauty can result from it. The rains have helped wildflowers to bloom, and have allowed the wildlife and insects to reap the benefits. The semi-arid land makes it hard for plants and pollinators to survive, however. The rain helped the growth and abundance of wildflowers and native plants, which means that there is more food for animals, shelter, soil stabilization, and beauty. When you take away the vegetation, then you also take away the ability for this soil to stay stable, said Sandy Holcomb, Highlands Ranch Metro District Park Ranger. So not only does it provide shelter for animals, we got pollinators, and this is also a stabilization for soil. Native plants grow each year, but the rain has increased the frequency of the plants. Larkspur have even been prominent. Cottonwoods are growing seed, and one plant that has thrived is the yucca. The water has been so good to them this year that they're blooming like mad, said Holcomb. Usually you don't see quite as many. The diversity of the plants include butterfly milkweed, prickly popsies, spiderwort, blue flax, choke cherries, three-leaf sumac, and purple prairie clover. While this spring brought a different kind of weather pattern to the metro area, there's much beauty that has resulted from it. That's all the time we have for today. I'll have to end here. Thank you for joining us for the Arapahoe County News. My name is Zachary Fisher. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.